Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Welcome to Real Estate Hackers, where you'll hear how real estate investors grew something from nothing. Property management is going to become more technical. Our entire business today is based off of a hack. What if you could put $1,000 into an apartment building project on your phone? With YouTube, with podcasts, you can catch up very quickly to a seasoned investor. Now here's your real estate hacker host, Chad Gallagher. Welcome to the Real Estate Hackers Show, where we talk to actual investors who use systems and tech to scale out their business and where they see this all going in the future. Before we get to this week's guest, a few words from our partners and friends of the show. Hey guys, Chad here, and we've got a special announcement that I am super psyched about. We are announcing the first ever Real Estate Hackers Conference. Get excited. It's called the Next Generation of Real Estate Investing focused on really the future of where investing is going, combining real estate, tech, and all the innovation coming about. It's going to be held in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the Lancaster Convention Center. We're going to have 40 speakers, including many folks that you've heard on this podcast, folks like Matt Faircloth, Jerry Horst, Anna Kelly, Michael Manthai, even Eric Cabral, who produces the show, will be there. Networking at night on Friday and Saturday at some super fun places within walking distance of the event. And we're going to have 100 vendors from across investing. These are folks I wish I had met when I first started investing in real estate. Each will even have a discount coupon to save you money the first time you work with them. April 3rd, 4th, and 5th at the Lancaster Convention Center. Go to realestatehackersconference.com to learn more. That's realestatehackersconference.com. Use the code HACKERS to save 50 bucks. And man, I hope to see you there. It's going to be an awesome, awesome weekend. On to the show. This show is brought to you by Red Rabbit Insurance. As a real estate investor, I love working with companies and people who truly understand investing. If you're a real estate investor, I highly suggest talking to Ryan at Red Rabbit Insurance. Red Rabbit specializes in working with investors of all sizes, both for their personal residence, auto, and investment properties. Red Rabbit recently saved one of our investors $5,000 a year by switching to the exact same coverage. That's a down payment on a new rental. I personally saved 15% by switching to Red Rabbit, which is pretty significant. And Red Rabbit Insurance makes it super easy to get a quote. All you need is the address, your full name, and your date of birth. No annoying questionnaires fill out and Red Rabbit gets you a quote in less than a day. Email ryan at redrabbitinsurance.com or go to the website redrabbitinsurance.com or call 1-800-560-3015. That's redrabbitinsurance.com. Call today to save some money and get better insurance rates for your investments. What is up, guys? I'm pumped. Come at you live from the Trenton Hive here today. Justin Massimo in the house. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, I just learned this is Justin's first ever podcast, which is shocking to me. Well, thank you for saying that it's shocking, but um, yeah, I'm a podcast virgin. I'm not. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that. Big but, day. Uh, you can say. It. You can say yeah. whatever you want. It's a big day for me. All Pub- right, this public is awesome. deb- Debut. <laughs> uh, guys, I'm pumped. We got a 
We even got the Facebook Live on the Real Estate Hackers page, which we've never done before, but we, um, we just think you're doing some really cool stuff, and I'm excited about what you've done. We're going to talk a little about that, but also what you're doing has me maybe even more excited. And I, want, I, know, I think it'll get our audience wheel spinning of what's possible. Sure. I'm, I'm excited to tell you about it. I mean, I've been doing this for quite some time now, working for other people, and then obviously starting my own investment company and different various real estate-related uh, companies to uh, all serve the same purpose. Um, I've had an obsession since I was very young um, with affordable housing, um, solving the affordable housing problem uh, that this country has. I'm not sure I was aware of that when I was 16, but uh, I was definitely obsessed with uh, Trenton and real estate development in Trenton when I was very young. So I knew that this is always what I wanted to do, and uh, I was lucky to get a job out of uh, pretty quick after college uh, doing it, and I learned a lot. Um, and for the last uh, about six years, I've been doing it on my own, and um, I've uh, you know made my share of mistakes, but I feel very clear in my vision now of uh, what the future of this uh, new product is. And That's awesome. So, so why don't we uh, take the audience through, uh, I think, you know, as I understand, you kind of got your start and spent the last, what, maybe five years, six years? So <clears throat> doing, doing kind of multifamily in, in Trenton? Yeah. So like I said, I, I worked for another developer for a few years, uh, learning a lot. Um, and then I decided, I always knew I wanted to work for myself eventually or be a partner um, and have a position where I could you know, make, make decisions on uh, direction of the company. And so about six years ago, uh, I started my own company. I started sort of a full service company because I really saw, and uh, you're an exception to this, but I, I really saw that um, owners uh, who were sort of hands-on, there was nobody who cared about their investments the way they did. They were personally important to them. So when I started the company, um, the way that I did it is, you know, I started a real estate brokerage and an uh, investment company and a, a development company and a construction company and a, um, uh, a property management company. So my thought was, I'll raise the money, I'll uh, do the construction, I'll uh, lease them out, I'll manage the property, and then I can dispose of them save, you know, uh, money on the uh, commissions on the front end, but also on the back end. So starting like I did with $0, which is essentially what I did. Uh, everyone thought it was crazy. My wife thought it was crazy. You know, I had, I had a job. You were crazy. <laughs> yeah. We, we were all probably a little crazy. Um, and I just started very simply. I started with, uh, renovating a couple single family homes and leasing them out. But I always wanted to hold uh, the investments long term. I was never very much into flipping stuff. A lot of my friends will say that I'm a gambler and a cowboy and, you know, I do a lot of crazy stuff. But I'm in this uh, vein, I'm, I'm very practical. I would much rather, I would much prefer having, you know, 5% return on something that's cash flowing and stack as much of that as possible rather than make, you know, $20,000 quick. Mm -hmm. So every penny I've made so far, I've essentially reinvested in more properties and more uh, business ventures. Not all of them have gone well. And then, like you said, I've learned a tremendous amount over the last six years, but um, 
I'm very excited because I feel like it's gotten me to a point here where I have a crystal clear vision on what I want to do going forward. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, I think you made a good point. Um, it's, it's interesting how if you think about maybe something like flipping homes or something that's more transactional based where you can, I mean, in, in real estate, it's a great example where you can make a lot of money in a short amount of time um, on a deal, right? Not, uh, just, you know, selling it or transacting or brokering, wholesaling. Um, I, I've personally always taken the approach of more kind of long-term, um, as you, you know, as you call it, kind of piling up small amounts of money over time. And that, that's been my uh, preference as well. I don't think one's right or wrong. I do think certain people play to certain personality types. And, and so my personality type lends itself much more to educated bets that are rational over a long period of time that, that kind of uh, has a high expected value. It's actually something I talk a lot about. What's the expected value here? Uh, I think sometimes the, the short-term win is, just has very high variance to it. Things can go kind of right or wrong, but the long-term bet seems to have, uh, I think, oftentimes a, a lower variance and a higher expected value because you can kind of just you can play it over a period of time, and actually over a period of time, you have a bunch of options. You know, we were talking today about some of your assets that you, you may actually sell some in the future or um, you may hold them for 20 years. Having that as an option that if you're flipping a home and you have to sell in three weeks, you don't have that option, right? Yeah, and I, I don't want to sound like, like you said, I don't think one's right or wrong. Um, and I don't want to sound uh, high-minded to say that like the guy who buys a house and fixes it up himself and needs to sell it in three weeks because he's got to pay his mortgage on his actual house. Um, that's just the reality, I think, of sometimes the way that people have a business model. Right. I, I'm lucky. I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, my wife is a successful woman, and she tolerates my uh, nonsense, I suppose you could call this. But um, I, uh, the way that I think about it is – I think a good example of this is one of the reasons that I'm particularly interested in affordable housing. Now, the way that people define that, a lot of people have a idea that it's government subsidized, and I mean it in a very plain way, which is, you know, the regular everyday guy or girl in this country or couple is having a terrible time figuring out how to afford a decent place to live. And the funny thing is, I feel really great about doing that and and working on that. But at the same time, I think it's the safest place to be because I think if you look at trends in this country, people are making less compared to what the dollar's worth today you know, than they've made in a long time. And I think that that uh, income base is completely stagnant. I don't think you're seeing hardly any income growth in that segment of the market. And the truth is that the cost of living somewhere, whether it's buying a place or renting a place, are going up. And so a lot of people are left with the option of, um, you know, just to use an example, somebody's house is foreclosed on and, you know, we can use a local example. Somebody ha somebody's house is foreclosed on in Ewing and they're paying whatever it is a month for a mortgage and they need a place to live and they're going to rent something and they can only afford so much. And so they go looking for a place that they can afford. And a lot of times their options when they look at that segment of the market are sad, you know, people, there are a lot of people taking advantage of people in that market segment. They're saying I can give them a piece of junk and I can still collect my thousand dollars a month. Um, and so part of this new idea, which I think is also a very safe and stable play considering the trend in income and, uh, the ways I think that 
real estate are going and where the demand's going to be is that you, my goal is, is that I can provide somebody looking for that who's living, let's say right now they're living in a apartment that costs a thousand dollars a month and the roof's got leaks in it and the systems are failing and so forth. I can provide them. The goal is, is to provide them with something that's much higher quality where I can do a better job or you can do a better job uh, managing it um, because I've standardized a lot of the items um, and, and the models. Uh, and I just, I feel very, I haven't done it yet, but I feel very proud of myself in the future once I've accomplished what it is that I want to do. So Justin, before we get to where you want to go, that, sure. and that's what I want to spend the sure. most time. I want to, sure. could you just give people, um, and I, I know you've, you've built up a very successful portfolio here. I think you were telling me it's like 80 units or hundred units here in the kind of Mercer County area. Um, could you give people an example of just one deal you've done? Maybe just sure. talking through, uh, I don't know if it's a six unit building or something and how you structured, how you found the deal and how you structured the partnership to essentially acquire the asset. Well, <clears throat> a very wise person, uh, somebody I used to work for said to me, and I'm sure this is in a hundred books somewhere, uh, has said, you make all the money on the acquisition. And so I've had that in my mind always. And so I've, it's hard to not be eager when you're start getting started. You want to uh, get as much done uh, as quickly as possible. And that's been one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this business is patience because you see something you drive by that you want to do, and then you want it to be finished tomorrow full of people and, uh, you know, financed. And that's just not the reality. There's, you know, political stuff, there's governments to deal with, there's investors, there's structuring the deal legally, all that kind of stuff. And that all just takes time. And every day I find myself being frustrated that it's not going faster, but um, it really requires meditation or something, whatever works for you to think about that. So anyway, the, sorry, I got off track, but the point there is, is that um, I find deals because I'm paying attention. And so um, I think there are many deals where I've stared at a building or driven by it for you know, a decade and there was nothing to do with it because it wasn't priced right um, or some other circumstance. And then something just happens and uh, there's a circumstance where you're able to make the project work. I should say one of the one of the things I've been trying to do, uh, one of the things I as part of this affordable housing sort of dream I have is – there are plenty of people out there that are utilizing government subsidies to provide affordable housing. But one of the frustrating parts for me is having done this for 15 years in a market where there is a lot of that, um, is that those projects go incredibly slow. I mean, you could wait a decade sometimes for the right subsidies that you need to get a project done. Uh, and especially when you're getting started, it's hard to pitch somebody, Hey, wait 10 years and then we'll get going on this project. Right. So, I've done up to this point, and I hope to do in the future, all market rate projects. Mm -hmm. um, I've taken advantage of some tax credits and stuff like that, but um, never waited around for grants or. Um, but you know. but as I understand, you did you you, and I'd love to hear just one maybe one sure. property example. But you you bring in an outside investor sure. who takes some percentage of the deal. Sure, you get the other percentage. Yep. Um, is is most of the investment being made by that outside investor so, on the deal? This is one of my faults. People ask me very specific questions and then I go on 15 minute tangents <laughs> about something completely different. I just want to get people's head around. Yeah, uh, I understand. And I think this is great because, you know, this is the 
step, I'll try and give you a step-by-step on how I've done that. In the beginning, and I was talking a little bit about this earlier beforehand, in the beginning, I would structure deals very simply because that's the only way that I knew how to structure a deal. I was going to get a promote for running the deal and then some investor was going to put the money in and we were going to split the ownership of the entity that held ownership of the property. So that was the basic way. And typically that's like just literally one investor coming in. Yes. In the beginning, that's the way it was for me. Um, And then I moved on to something a little bit more complicated, which is um, I would do, I would generally set up a pref equity structure. And so there would be, you know, a sponsor class and a GP, or we call it the investor class. And the, basically, if you put money in, then you would get your money back first with some sort of return. And then above that, the class A members or the um, sponsors would then get some sort of, uh, there would be a split on what was left after mm-hmm. that, let's mm-hmm. say. And then the third way that I more complicated that I've you know recently executed is uh, a waterfall structure, which essentially sets benchmarks. And then once, so there's sponsors and again, general partners and the sponsors, ben- the better the investment does, the larger share that they get of the return. And mm-hmm. then the investors in general, it's a way for the investment group to then sponsor, to motivate the sponsors who are, who are running the deal. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always, I always put money in. A lot of people are looking for like, I would highly suggest anyone that's getting started or listening to this and is trying to do a deal and is not sure what to do. And they're thinking, I don't have any money. Um, I've got to go out and raise some money to do this. I, I really believe in this is before you do it, save a little bit of money and put, some of that money in because I think it makes all the difference in the world to investors for right. sure. So you also putting some money in besides it all being investor money. Correct. And so all, everything that I own, I have money in. Yeah, now. I agree. I, I'm actually in the, in the process of just about, I'm literally in the, doing a, a new deal um, with a, uh, a syndicator and, and I'm kind of helping him put it together. And I asked him, are you putting money in? And he said, I'm not sure. And I kind of said, I said, I'm actually not going to, it's a deal killer for me. Um, I, I, you need deal, you need money in as the syndicator sponsor or whatever. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's just a token and it's a gesture, you know? And I think if you're honest with the investors, especially about your own financial position, as comfortable as you are, you know, I've said things before, like, look, I've got, I've only have $20,000 in the bank, but I believe in this so much that I'm going to put half of that into this deal, you know? And it, that could be a $500,000 deal. And what does $10,000 mean in that? Not much, but um, you know, they appreciated that, you know, yeah, that I was I, willing I think to put half my way. money at risk. That's right. That's so. right. That's right. Um, so, okay. So that's great. And then I'm, I'm sorry. I did it again. I think <laughs> I didn't give you a specific deal. No, no, it's close though. You, I think you're, we're getting there. <laughs> okay. So I did a, uh, I did a, oh, there are so many. So I did a three unit deal. Um, it was a triplex. It was a conversion of an old duplex, uh, uh mixed use building. Um, I had, this is very simple. I had one partner who is uh, my sponsor in a lot of other deals, my partner uh, in the sponsor group. And he and I this time decided that we were just going to do this one on our own. And that deal was set up very simply. It was just, we put each put half the money in. That's actually the only deal I've done a hard money deal on because it was so small. Um, And we had a significant amount of equity buying the building. We bought the building outright. Um, and then we used essentially used hard money to do the renovation. And that's because I wanted to move more quickly on that. Um, and a, 
a big thing that I've learned is that getting sourcing debt for like, you know, a hundred thousand dollar deal often takes just as long as sourcing debt for a $2 million deal. Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking at a period of like a three month renovation or a two month renovation, sometimes, oftentimes it might be worth it to pay 12% some points or whatever you're getting from a hard money lender. If you're going to do a deal like that, cause I don't have, you know, four months to go to 15 different banks and fill out the same application over and over again. You know? Right. So that's one simpler deal that I've done. Um, and then, and then refied it at the, yeah. And then I refied it at the end. Um, a lot of times, and we talked about this earlier today, um, and not in this case, but if you can get a commercial loan, right. Which in general, in my experience has been any of the buildings that I own that have five units or more, the banks are willing to treat like a commercial loan. Um, they will use, obviously the audience knows they'll use a, um, an income approach on the appraisal. And so that's been one of my biggest challenges that I've been trying to figure out how to address is that I actually prefer to do single family home deals. That's really where I want to focus going forward. Um, and uh, the biggest challenge there is, especially when you're in an area where the comparables aren't great, is that you end up with a ton of cash locked up in the deal because if you spend $60,000 you know, building a house and the comps in the area are 50 grand, um, 40 grand even sometimes, uh, you know, you end up, if you can get, you know, 75% of that 60 that you spent out, you still end up with a big, and so your returns end up suffering if you have an investor in there and, you know, they end up with 20 grand locked in and it's producing a thousand dollars a year or whatever it is. Um, the more, obviously everyone's looking at the returns as a percentage. And so the more money you have in, the harder right. it is to make your returns. Right. So and we're going to talk about your pivot here next, but sure. I, I think it makes such a good point, which is I mean, people talk a lot about the burst strategy and kind of using that as a way to pull money out of a deal. And I think you're totally right that um, sometimes people don't talk enough about kind of when to not use that strategy. You're going to have to forgive me because this is a totally new world to me. I'm, I'm sure I'm supposed to know what the burst strategy is. <laughs> yeah, but so, I, and I felt so ashamed get, when I came okay. into this office because everyone was, uh, you know, they have all of this knowledge for being part of this community. And I, I've been yeah. fairly insular on my own to so, do, so execute first this. First off, I'm really glad you said that because there's probably people in the audience who are listening who also don't know what it is. The funny thing is you've been doing it. You just don't probably know the terminology. So um, one of the founders of uh, Bigger Pockets coined the term Burr as basically um, a deal where you buy it and then rehab it, um, uh, refi it, rent it, or rent it out, refi it, and then repeat is the last R. Um, it's kind of a weird acronym, but the key part of it is basically that you're essentially not just getting traditional lending upfront where you're getting lending at 20% and your down payment is 20% or 25% of the deal, but you're using some other source of cash, typically um, putting in a bunch of rehab, making it worth more or, or renting out or whatever, and then refining out. And, and that strategy works really well when the eventual appraisal price is going to be significant. And, and you don't even have to sell it. So it doesn't really matter what the market price is. It really matters what's this thing going to appraise for. Yeah. And so in a market like Trenton, we can use, for example, in a market like Trenton, uh, I've been very successful with the Burr method, I guess it's called. I've been very successful with the Burr method uh, when I have a multifamily building that's five units or more because 
the things do cash flow well and you can prove out in an appraisal where you're using an income approach you can prove out some yep. significant value that's been added when you take a dilapidated building with no income and then you yep. spend money on it and you you have to be you know careful about what your your budget when you're doing it but there's often times where you end up with your return we talked about this earlier today again where you end up with a significant return up front you know and then it's feel like, well, if this thing just breaks even from here on out, I've already made 20% yep. on this. So no, it, it's, it's right in the money. So now let's, let's, this is a great segue to kind of pivoting to where you're headed to next and gets kind of into a single family home world where, uh, I, I want you to kind of explain everything you're going to be doing, but also with the caveat that, um, sometimes the single family home, maybe that, that house won't quite appraise as much because you're looking at relevant comps. And so in that case, actually the burst strategy doesn't maybe not work as well. And you might be better off just actually putting 20% down um, because usually then you, a, a bank will usually appraise it at, if it's like new construction, what it was built for. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I hope that's the truth. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't had much luck also in markets like this convincing people what you spend on what you're doing, even if it's new construction means that's what it's worth yeah. because you have to keep in mind, I'm going to get sidetracked again. You have to keep in mind that the bank at all times is assuming the worst case scenario. So they're assuming they immediately that you're going to fail right. and that if they have right. to take it back from you, what are they going to sell it for? And so they want to know what the comps are and in places like this all over the country. And I, I'll talk more about, you know, uh, testing this out in different markets, but in markets like this all over the country, you know, there you're, you're looking for an, a, com- a comparable appraisal on a street where there's five other foreclosures or tax lien foreclosures or bank foreclosures, whatever, whatever's going on. Um, and so, you know, you could end up with a half decent one, but then you could also end up with a comp that's, you know, 20 or $30,000 cause it was a distressed seller. Um, and so, the way that I want to deal with this is um, a couple things. One, one of the things that I've been thinking about is I, my preference is to own, like we talked about, own something long term and um, you know, happy with the cash flow and, and more modest returns. But I've been contemplating having to mix some for sale to it to basically establish comps, especially in tougher neighborhoods where it's harder to do. So in the beginning, especially if I'm working in a specific neighborhood, I would try and mix in, my thought is I would try and mix in some sales to establish my own comps. I'm also working collaboratively with different lenders and brokers to try and come up with a solution to create a portfolio loan or find a product. If anyone out there knows of anything, I'd be happy to hear you, um, where if I produce 10 brand new single family homes within relatively close distance to one another, and I could show steady income over some period and stability, um, that they would treat those 10 single family homes just like they would treat a 10 unit multifamily building. Because honestly, and I think you've said this is true, and I I was glad to hear it earlier today, it made me feel better because you have a lot more data than me, um, that single family homes perform very well, um, and oftentimes compared to other things. And so, I don't see a reason that the bank shouldn't treat those kind of investments just like they would a 10 unit building. Yeah. The, the comment I made, and I, I do believe this, which is um, one reason why people are, you often hear, you'll hear people say things like single family homes are more risky. because There's only one tenant, right? Um, and if that tenant's not there, you have no rent coming in. And so I actually think that the most 
stable investment in real estate is actually a whole bunch of single family homes because this, the single family home actually um, when aggregated together, you get the benefit of a whole bunch of units. So if one goes vacant, it's okay. You have other units in the portfolio that are paying. So you don't have that kind of monthly fluctuation that, that sometimes can be called considered risky. The flip side is a single family home is exponentially or easier to manage in my opinion you know, then maybe that three unit building because um, you don't have th like things like utilities are all paid for by the tenant. It's typically a longer life tenant who lives there. Um, I mean, there's folks who will argue their side of this and, you know, there's some advantages of having a hundred units in one place, right. To manage. Um, but I think if you're, not if you're managing them for me, I don't care where they are. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But I think if, you, if you're kind of comparing that like three to four unit building and a whole bunch of those versus single family homes, Man, I, I actually do agree that there's a lot of benefits to single family homes. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't I didn't come to this conclusion instantaneously. Um, it's I don't have a ton of data, but it's proven out in the portfolio that I've had. They just plain perform better. And I agree with you. I don't see why. And this is not to say that somebody who can is just getting started and can is deciding between a triplex and a single family and three single family homes that that's not true. Um, but if you think about it, it's the same amount of units, but I do agree with you if they're managing their own property, you know, and this is one of the reasons that I did get into multifamily stuff is because a lot of that stuff is true. But I think if you're thinking about, um, it from a growth per, you know, potential and your goal is to own, let's say a hundred units, uh, I would rather own a hundred single family homes any day of the week than I would a hundred unit building. Yeah. Um, you know, we can, I could spend a long time evangelizing about why that is, but, um, I, you know, I think you probably have a significant amount of data with units that you manage and, uh, I'm glad to hear that you agree. Um, more stability. There's yeah. no question. Um, so I want to, I want to segue here. Sure. I want you to, to, I mean, as I understand, as I kind of think it through, I really would call this a pivot in your business. So you build up this 80 to hundred unit portfolio here in Mercer County and by the way, hugely successful. Congratulations. And then are, but are now pivoting to modular homes, new construction. And keep in mind, this is an audience. We talk a lot about the intersection of real estate and tech. This is actually a topic I had been fascinated in for so long. You're the first person I've ever seen actually executing against it or starting to execute against it. Um, because you would think that as tech starts to catch up, you know, one of my hypotheses has been that you're going to have tech be able to build homes at a cheaper price than what they're built today. And I think modular homes is, is maybe the answer. And I'd like you to kind of talk people through that. Great. Well, I'm, I'm excited that you're excited about it. I think there are a lot of, uh, you give me too much credit. There are plenty of other people out there there that have the same idea. Um, and you'll see, you know, Berkshire's buying multiple manufactured home companies. I mean, there's big time hedge fund, wall street money going into this. So I'm a small uh, fish, but, um, and it scares me a little to go up against them, but not enough not to do it. So I, I would say that I'm obsessed with systemizing things. I'm obsessed with efficiency. I'm probably not the most efficient person on my own, but the idea of efficiency sure. I'm obsessed sure. with. Yeah. And so I've, I'm not a programmer. I have tons of friends that are successful in uh, tech stuff. So I'm, I'm right there with you. When I started the property management company, 
I only had two units and I paid a bunch of money for, uh, you know, expensive property management software. Cause I thought when I get to where I want to go, I don't want to have to transition from a terrible software to another one. Yep. Um, and I paid way too much for it, but I, that's, I it needed to be efficient. And so that's part of the idea behind this. And I think that there are probably cheaper, more efficient ways to do this than modular. Um, there's things out there like 3D printing homes and there's, you know, kits that are made out of different stuff that you just attach a crane to and you pick them up and they, they're in place. But um, I think that it, so one of the facts that I think is interesting is construction in general has had minimal change to the way that things are built over the last hundreds of years. Yeah, absolutely. And so something like that to me is ripe for disruption in some way. Can you take a step back? Really yeah, quick? I sure. hate to interrupt you. Can you give people the basics of what a modular sure. home looks like and how that's different from, I guess, what would you call it? Stick construction? Is yeah. Kind of the, the so the way that people usually build something is they're, people call it stick framing. And so there's different ways to stick frame. There's balloon framing and different framing methods. But um, usually, and, and the thing about that is it's a commodity. Like the lumber cost with the lumber cost, the labor in general, there's some fluctuation costs with the labor cost. Um, and so there's not much of an opportunity to uh, create efficiencies and create ways to, you know, uh, create a more, um, a more successful or profitable investment. And so the way that things have traditionally been done, right, is, and this is one of the things I'm trying to turn on its head is somebody finds a site. If they're doing new construction, they find a site that they like or even a renovation, they find a site that they like. And then they say, how can I maximize the profit here? And usually it's by creating as much density as possible. So somebody, especially in an urban area, will find a lot or suburban. They'll find out what the zoning is. And then they'll say, how do I maximize the profit on this thing? I'm going to build this cram as much as I can. And as the law will allow me in here, um, regardless of the fact that it might be an area where people want to live in their own home or whatever, it's just, it's the way to squeeze the most profit out of that or, um, revenue out of that property. And so that's the way that things have traditionally been built. And what made me think about this is I thought about, well, if construction cost and stick framing is sort of a commodity and it's a fixed thing that fluctuates only when the price of lumber goes up or down or whatever, and there's no way for me to change the way that the lumber uh, then I have to change the way that the homes are not changed, but I have to find a new way to take advantage of efficiencies that are created when a home is built in a different way. And what are those different ways that a home can be built? So the next step after that, if I've answered sort of what stick framing is, um, the next step after that is a lot of people have done panelized homes. And so what that means is somebody in a factory somewhere will create a panel. A lot of times it's what's called a SIPS panel. Um, it's actually not SIPS panel, a SIPS. Um, and then that panel will then be shipped to the site. But again, they're building exactly what fits the site. So they'll take the site. What's the best thing I can build here? Instead of stick framing it, they'll build it out of panels. So that's, you know, a next evolution. And so, so it gets, it gets shipped as an entire property in that construction in that, in that type, or, or is it, is it pieces that are then put it's, together? It's pieces and it's only part of the building. Okay. So the efficiency that you create is it's a little bit more expensive because you get better insulation ratings and whatever, maybe you can get it to the same price as what it costs you to stick frame something, but you've still got to build the foundation on site, which I'm not proposing not doing cause you have to, but you build the foundation on site, 
then you get the panels shipped, and then you put the panels together. And so the panels can be the floor, the exterior walls, the interior walls, and the roof. Um, some people ship them with windows and doors in them and that kind of stuff. So some of that stuff can be eliminated as well. Some don't. But um, you still have to finish the interior with local labor. You still have to go through all the plumbing, permitting, all that kind of stuff. I'm probably going to, in the beginning iteration of this, probably build some panelized homes um, just because ramping up a production um, facility and ramping up trying to get involved in manufacturing in any way is a struggle. Um, and so I'm trying to take this in bite-sized pieces. But I think the next step after that is then to either create a manufactured or a mo what's called a manufactured or modular home. Now, manufactured housing has a terrible stigma to it, especially in the South. And it's probably even harder to do in the North. It's people think they're trailer homes. And so what often makes the difference between manufactured housing can be a variety of different things. It can be modular housing. It can be uh, manuf a manufactured home that's produced in a factory. It can be, and a trailer home is part of the manufactured housing sort of uh, world. But just because you say manufactured housing does not mean that you're building a trailer home. Yep. And so part of that world is modular housing. Um, and so the thought process there would be is that you build the home in modules. And you're going to want to do as much of that as you can up front inside the factory because the efficiencies that are created are systemizing the processes, essentially turning building a home into manufacturing a widget. And so one of the things, one of the ideas that we've had or been throwing around is that you build a certain amount of modules and then you can have different ways that those modules are put together to create sort of different shapes of homes so that if you wanted to build 30 homes, you could put the modules together in different ways so the whole development didn't look different, look a little different. I don't think that that's completely necessary. I have a lot of friends who are into aesthetics and they're like, you know, want it to be different in every home because of the sense of community and feel that it has. When I first started down this road, what I wanted to do was just build one house. I wanted to think about my experience, read the data, do as much research as I could, talk to city governments across the country, talk to people who are looking for affordable homes. And I just wanted to build one unit it could maybe be adapted a few ways on the interior, but the box would be exactly the same. And so the thought process in doing that was if I can reduce the, um, if I can reduce the uh, actions or movements that are necessary or the systems and this, a person or a machine is doing the same thing over and over and over again, and the materials are exactly the same for every single unit, and I can order in bulk and I can reduce the price. I can get the labor standardized so that, you know, somebody's not putting in uh, elbow plumbing fitting and then, you know, 10 seconds later has to run a big run of pipe. It would be this guy or robot is doing the same exact thing over and over again. So that's, that's another evolution uh, I don't need to get into, but a lot of people are building homes robotically. So there's big, huge companies out there that have a huge head start. And they're using like Katera and Blue Homes, and they're using essentially uh, uh, manufacturing methods that are used in car factories. And so they have robot arms and all different kinds of very expensive machinery that's um, putting- It sounds these, like the Jetsons. Yes, pretty much. Um, but a lot of the issues that I've seen are that, um, or that I've read about essentially, 
these large housing manufacturing companies is they ramp up and they have to spend tens of millions or however much putting all this machinery together and this amazing system. And they probably can build homes faster and cheaper eventually, but it's a huge investment not to get that going. And then they might see some demand or they might have some projects to do and things might be going well. And then there's a lull, right? And then they have to ramp back down. And if you're, you know, steering the Titanic gigantic factory with all this stuff in it, if you're going to change course or ramp down the labor or whatever you have to do to adjust to make, keep the company profitable, it's very difficult to do. And so we talked about this earlier, but one of the ideas that I have is to create an entity, um, a real estate investment entity that is tied in with the manufacturing entity. And so the manufacturing entity would then be able to uh, work in partnership with the real estate investment entity to drive its own demand. And I'm not saying that the manufacturing entity couldn't take third party orders, but um, you would at least know that you have a baseline demand because like I said earlier, I truly believe that the demand for quality, affordable housing is endless. And we can go into this if you want, but the one of the big things that I learned about when working on this project for the last three years is I went and visited with a lot of cities, a lot of city governments, and every single one of them by the time I left was begging, like, please do something like that here because we have a terrible problem. People with good jobs can't afford to afford, find affordable places to live. And so I firmly believe with everything that I have that the market is big enough for anyone who wants to get into it. Yeah. So a uh, lot Sorry. to unpack there. <laughs> I want to, um, you should give me yes or no questions. <laughs> uh, I want to, um, I want to do a quick little, just recap of what you're basically proposing doing. Sure. Um, I think, look, I think this, this audience has got a lot of things you're saying. People are going to say, I agree, but then like, what does it actually look like and how do you move forward? And what I love about what you're doing is actually moving forward. Um, so as I understand it, you're basically proposing to create, I think you told me like 900 square foot homes. Yeah. So these are yes or no questions. Okay. Yes. Yes. That is the average size home. Okay. So an average size home of 900 square feet, single family home. Correct. To be made as rentals. Yes. This is good. We're, we're, we're getting through a lot <laughs> yeah, of stuff. You got it. You got to um, put me on the stand. Uh, but then a, basically a production factory. That's not what I factory. What, what would you call it? A production facility facility. Factory, yeah. Okay. That's basically creating the same version of the home over and over with maybe small variances. Um, and then a real estate company who's basically going out and finding land in maybe in one space, but probably not probably a bunch of different land over different cities. I would imagine. Correct. Good. We're, we're getting through this now. Um, and then, uh, by the way, uh, podcast listeners love fire rounds. Okay. I think it's because of this. You get I'm ready. Of, all right. So that's what I'm kind of doing. So, um, and then basically the, the real estate company will basically buy them. And I guess you then can, can control the flow of demand as opposed to these huge ups and downs. You basically know, Hey, look, over the next two years, we're going to need 500 homes because this real estate investment company is going to basically guaranteed you a, a huge purchase order, for example. Correct. Um, and then make them rentals, basically, that just like a, a real estate investment company would normally buy a, a new construction home or a rental. These are basically rentals. Rent them out. Correct. <laughs> and then uh, finally, I guess, have a bank come along with you on this journey? Correct. So we would need to find long-term 
sources, some of them for things like revolving credit lines and stuff like that. We don't have to get too much into that, but the basic idea would be, I'll talk about in the beginning, but the basic idea in the beginning would be build a tranche of 10 of these homes, stabilize them, lease them up, uh, and then find somebody who's going to finance that package of 10 homes as a stable mm -hmm. single family home, but hopefully getting some sort of income approach. As you're talking, at right. least a blended approach. And then, the appraisal. I mean, you could actually turnkey these and sell them as turnkey rentals yeah, and to an so, investor. So two different things. One of them was your suggestion. Um, and then another one that we thought about was uh, there's definitely, so a lot of times and you guys, everyone listening probably knows this is a lot of times when people are giving you money for an investment, they want to know what the exit strategy is. It's like the biggest question, the most common one I get, which is like, when is that money I'm giving you going back in my pocket? Um, which is important to all of us. But um, so unless you're utilizing an in, some sort of institutional investor, um, if you're going to somebody or a local bank or I, I don't know what it is, they're going to want to know they're not going to want to go along for the ride for 20 years with you necessarily. Even if that's what I want to do, not most people are going to want to sit around in something like that. So, um, you know, I've gotten people that are willing to wait five years and 10 years and they understand that real estate take, you know, it takes time to, for the deal to mature, but at the same time, um, they want to know how they're going to get out. So that's one of the other approaches that we could have here too, because I'm not necessarily uh, saying that this real estate investment company is only going to source its money from one person or investor, um, but that on individual deals, we could obviously take on other investors as well. And so though, depending on what that deal is, those investors are probably going to ask what the exit strategy is. There's not going to be a huge pool of people who are going to say, let's sit in it for 40 years. So the thought would be then, same thing. Oh, let's say you do 50 somewhere and then you would lever them up. Um, you would have a basis in them and then you would look for somebody who's looking for a stable return. So there's things like, um, you know, family offices and uh, private equity firms and, you know, all kinds of different REITs and, you know, that huh. are going around and buying stuff like this. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously a, an asset once rented and, and has even, you know, four or five, six months, even a year, of track record of the rents coming in that the value totally changes there because there's now they're buying a basically return like a business. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, um, I think that one of the things that people have to keep in mind is that, um, when you get into this, um, you're going to see that people at the beginning are going to, uh, be hesitant to you know, invest. Once you build a track record, you know, so this is the hardest part of this adventure for me is because I'm doing essentially doing proof of concepts. Um, but I think eventually after we've done a series of deals, um, we're going to find it easier to find somebody who says, look at the track record of these deals. I mean, we've talked about doing investment funds where people are investing in this kind of asset up front, you know, because, but this all has to come later after we sort of have a proof of concept and we've executed this some. I want to do, I want to do a quick, um, another fire round sure. on the economics of this. Sure. So let's just take one single family home kind of by itself, modular home, um, real rough numbers. You'd buy the land for, obviously it totally depends on where you're buying it, but you tell me. Okay. 10K. Yeah. So, I mean, the target would be somewhere to be in the five or $10,000 range. Obviously you can go into some cities and, you know, 
they're saying if you could put it back on the tax rolls, it doesn't cost much. Yeah, we'll give so, it for free. Maybe. Right. Um, and then, you know, you can go into a nicer neighborhood somewhere and it might be 20. And obviously you're going to get more money for your homes. That's not really the segment of the market that I'm targeting. But all my friends who want to see me make more money are saying stop doing that stuff are telling me to you know move into a neighborhood where it costs a little more. Um, so yes, so let's let's assume it costs ten thousand dollars. So, so ten ten for the land, modular home, nine hundred square foot. It's going to cost so sixty rough numbers. We're so not trying to so let's in. just talk straight cost and not what you would end up selling it to somebody else for. Right. Because of the dynamic that I'm proposing, which is two companies, we're going to set up some sort of relationship. Agreement. Yes, yeah. agreement where the manufacturing company is still profitable, but at the same time, the real estate company is also uh, reaping the benefit of yep. having ownership having, in the and having driven down the cost of the manufacturing because yep. of that partnership. So I would say straight cost. The goal, the long term goal, is to be at fifty bucks a foot. It's a tall order. I've seen enough examples of how hard that can be. I think with 3D printing, it's super, It's definitely possible, but you have to wait for the codes and stuff to catch up with that kind okay. of stuff. But um, but let's be a little conservative then. Let's just so, say so let's, 55K? Let's say sound? real deal right now. If there was a facility operating and we tried to put this method in place and having analyzed what the material costs and the labor costs are and so forth, depending again, if you're laborers in Maine or... Florida or wherever sure. it is, or New York city, let's say the average we're going for, I would say the targets around 60 bucks a foot. Okay. So 900 square feet, 60 bucks a foot. So call it 55 K correct ish. Correct. Plus the land. So now you're at 65. Correct. Again, I'm just trying to get people's head around what, why, why, maybe why I'm excited about it. So, so 65 K all in for a brand new Don't single family soft home. costs. You're probably going to have you know a couple thousand dollars closing yes, and all that stuff. Okay. So let's, let's, let's even be a little conservative here. Let's say we're up to 70. Yeah. I'd say that's the goal number being okay. conservative. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I think, and obviously the, the market's going to totally change, but a 900 square foot brand new construction unit. It'll be three in, in a market like this, it'll be three beds, one bath. Yeah. We're looking at some three bed, two bath. I mean, so in, in, in obviously rental price changes by city, but in a, in a place like Trenton, thousand dollars. Oh, I think you're going to get more for it because I have ton. So one of the methods, one of the things we're trying to prove out is I have a few homes that are right in a row on a certain street. Um, and those are small row homes, two bed, one bath and three bed, one bath. Mm -hmm. And I get between 950 and 1100. Right. I think you're going to get 1300 for something like that. Okay. So if so you want to be conservative, which is what I did in my modeling, say 1200? I, I, I called it 1100. Okay. So I 1100. said, look, if you get the same amount, right. You know, look at what you're getting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I mean, as people just do some quick back of the envelope math there, if, you know, if, if you're getting 1100 at a conservative number and the entry price of new construction, which means your long-term, your next, your maintenance next five years is almost nothing. Your ability to fill it can be quick. People love, love moving into new construction homes. You get great tenants, which means low evictions. If I could, you know, say $1,100, and all in, I'm at, you know, let's just say 70K. I mean, that's a deal. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, re I'm really excited about it. I mean, when you, like I said, again, when you start at this at the beginning, uh, most of the people who think they want to write you checks are looking for 30% returns or something crazy. And so you're combing through everything to like hit a home run or 
or at least a double like every time. I think that this is a surefire fire single, like repeatable over and over and over again. And that's really what I'm interested in doing and going after. I mean, if you look at just take a step back, the, the broad real estate market, right? Kind of, you know, what, what people would call normal return rates. I mean, an $1,100 brand new construction home, the average person in, in real estate across the country, that's going to be a hundred thousand dollar home. I'm just telling you that that's, that's, that's what these things go for, right? A rent for 1100, you're going to sell for hundred K. You know, a lot more than I do. Yeah. So I'm going to so, build a lot of these homes and you show <laughs> me where these people are that want to pay a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not making things up. I mean, the 1% rule is a very overly used term. I hate that term, but, um, you know, it's a decent back of the envelope math of what the average thing goes for in a decent market. So I mean, if you look at it, this is going to work. Um, so it's really, so, so I, you know, just kind of fast forward all the way through then. And I, this is one of the last questions I want to ask you is, sure. could you see a world where in five years, you know, not two or three people are messing around in modular homes, but that we maybe see a large percentage of new construction homes being built as single family home, modular homes that are actually turned into rentals? Well, I'll say this. There's a lot of infrastructure in place that's fighting against you. And I think this is true in any part of the tech world or whatever, where something's ripe for dis disruption. You know, you've got, uh, you have uh, building inspectors that want to keep their jobs. I mean, we didn't even get into that. There's an efficiency created because you're having a third party inspection person inspecting these things in the facility. So you don't have to deal with local building inspectors oftentimes. But I can promise you when you bring that thing into the city, and put it together and you tell them, oh, no, 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 this is already inspected and approved by the state, you're going to get a lot of pushback. So I don't know how long it's going to be, but I think that you probably believe what I believe, which is uh, progress is inevitable. Right. And so, so my five years is maybe too optimistic, but that in, in a period of time, there is a, a, you know, you could see, you could see a world where there are a lot of modular homes created as rentals sold as investment properties with returns that are really easy to predict. I a hundred percent agree with you. I mean, you spoke about a little bit about it earlier, but the thing that I'm most excited about this, forget about all the returns and everything. And you probably are too, is the maintenance because if I can standardize everything that's in these units and it'll be a process to learn this, but if I know for sure the, you know, uh, GE model, whatever it is, uh, I've put in a thousand of them. And on average, the data says they die every 7.3 years. Then th there's no limit to the predictability of what the returns and oh, awesome. all that kind of I mean, stuff is I mean, in be. years, I mean, from a management perspective, year seven, you go in and you just change them all out. Yep. As opposed to waiting for no heat calls. Yeah. And right. the other thing you can do is if you know that, and we're, it'll take us a while to get there, you can then have your clients reserve for all that stuff and say, look, we know the water heater is going to die now. We know the air conditioning is going to die then. Yeah, CapEx. Know. Yeah, and you're going to know, okay, every month I suggest, and that's going to be an advantage for you as a property manager. That's like a whole new level. We talked about this earlier today. As a guy who's having you manage the properties, I mean, there's a lot of things that are important, but no thing is more important than making sure that the property makes money. Yeah, but um, budgeting is something that comes up all the time. People say, hey, can you do better? Can you help us budget? And I'll tell you, man, in, in old construction budgeting, I mean, golly, it sounds easy, but. <laughs> and that was a big part of my motivation to get into this. I mean, that's one, and I'll talk about this tonight, but one of the uh, 
big reasons that I this I love this idea is that you have to make hard decisions. And I did plenty of homes where I just bought a home, a duplex, whatever it is, and I estimated what the costs were going to be and I projected returns for my investors. And then you make a decision. You say, I have $50,000 to spend fixing this up if it's going to be profitable. And then you have to make a lot of hard decisions, right? Oftentimes you say, well, this section of cast iron sewer pipe's working just fine right now. I'm going to leave it there because I need the extra thousand dollars for the windows, or I'm going to leave the windows around and so forth. And there's tons of examples of that. And then you get tenants in the building and three months later, the cast iron pipe explodes and you've got another $6,000 expense or whatever it is. And now your investment shot for 18 months. Yeah. So I'm hoping to eliminate that. I've had plenty of surprises just like that. And I, I grew tired of them after six years. And so I need to find a solution. Awesome, Justin. I, uh, one more question. Sure. I end every interview here where I ask people, and this is me with you. Um, I think I know the answer, but I always ask people, what, what are you most excited about the next five years in real estate from a technology or innovation perspective? Hmm. Well, I'm a big, I have some friends that are in tech and they're all always constantly preaching to me about data. And to me, this is like a science experiment where I'm trying to eliminate the variables. And so I'm excited about producing high quality, affordable, efficient homes that are superior to what people are living in right now for the same amount or a little bit more money than they're currently paying that are very profitable, that generate a lot of feedback for us so that not so that we have the feedback, but so that we can do a better job going forward of further um, honing that idea. And because I think that everything is an iterative process and all my programming friends talk about this all the time. So this idea that I have is version 1.0, it's actually probably version 4.0, but like I'm super excited about having uh, a playground, let's call it. And I think that a lot of other people are seeing it this way. Like we mentioned earlier, Berkshire hedge funds, you know, and people, I think the trend of the way that people want to live, one of my dream ideas is our, our agri hoods. Like I love the, that idea. And so that's for further down the road. Also, I don't know what that means, but well, I'm not, I don't think sure. we have the time for it today. Sure. I, I do want you to come back and tell me what an agri oh, hood is. Oh, okay. No problem. I'd be happy to come back. So thank you very much. <laughs> Justin, uh, uh, by the way, I didn't mean to cut you short there. Oh, no, you know, no, no. Let, yep. let me pause you. Just t sure. tell people what an agri hood is, at least. <laughs> yeah. So, One minute, though. You got to keep it short. I'll keep it short. So anyway, it would be some sort of systemized farming. And I actually had this idea for Trenton. Um, some sort of indoor farming that's basically centered around a community of like-minded people who want healthy food. Uh, they want to feed their kids and their family well. So one of the ideas I had was to create a CSA that's part of a real estate development, whether it's in a city or a rural area, where part of your rent is a membership to this local CSA so that you can get great quality food. I like it. So anyway, that's sort of a dream idea. And, and basically the only point of that is that this whole thing is iterative. And what I'm looking most forward to, to answer your question, is um, what I love doing is when people tell me that something's impossible and it can't be done, there's no, sh no more sure way to get me to do it, failed or not. And so is to take something that people are saying, have said is silly or can't be done or whatever. And I think that this is going to improve uh, people who are looking for high quality, affordable housing's lives. And I'm really excited about that. 
Awesome, man. Justin, uh, so cool. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this, and I know our audience would like to. So we're hosting this conference first weekend in April in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It's going to put me on the spot now, I know. Justin, can can you make the conference? Can you come hang out with us? I will have to check the calendar. Oh, here we go. No, and I have, I have a wife and kids. Here we go. I have to ask permission. I'm here not the boss. Go. But yes, I would love I would love to do that. That's awesome. Um, uh, can't wait for our conference April 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Real Estate Hackers in Lancaster. Folks like Justin hanging out, talking nerd, talking real estate stuff. Agrohoods. Agrohoods. Uh, and, and love the modular home concept. Ever since I've heard this, my wheels have been spinning. I know many of you are probably thinking about this too, and maybe how you could use this in your business. What's a good way for people to get, get in touch with you if they just want to kind of talk shop or sure. share I, some ideas? I would say uh, best way is, uh, if email is the best way, uh, you can get me justin at mercerap.com. Um, also, if you wanted to check out something about this company, obviously we haven't uh, produced homes yet, but um, simplifyhousing.com. So it's S-I-M-P-L-I-F-I housing.com. And then you can see some of the models and some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Goal is to try to launch this in the next year or two. Is that a fair? Oh, in the next year, hundred percent. Yeah. So awesome. I'm gonna. The goal this year is locally to build uh, a few proof of concepts, probably five to six of them. And there are other markets that we're looking at um, doing. Probably something that looks a little different, but testing the market for a product like this. That's awesome, man. Thank you. Uh, reach out to Justin if you're interested. By the way, I'm interested. Oh, so uh, love this. Love the predictability of it. Love what you're up to. Thanks for hanging out with us, buddy. It's my pleasure. I'll do it anytime. Thank you. All for right, cool. Me. All right. We're a wrap. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. I have one more request. If you like this show, could you just please give us a review on Apple Podcasts? I'd really, really appreciate it so more investors can hear about us. Follow us at Real Estate Hackers on Instagram. If you're cool like my wife, and if you have a great real estate hack, hit me up. Maybe we'll get you on this show. Real Estate Hackers is an on-air brands production. Eric and team are unbelievable. Thanks for all you do for the show. See you soon.